Thanks for downloading this podcast from Brom Radio. For more programs, search our podcast page at bromradio.com. Music is the one thing that we all understand that we don't understand. Music has tremendous driving power within the narrative of any film. Bond. James Bond. The visual is one thing. When you add music, it becomes something else. It's a whole different experience. The score is the heartbeat. Of the film. So much of it is felt. It's all about intuition. You realize this power we wield. You can make you feel anything we want you to feel. John Williams made me realize film music can be as great as the classical composer. Thomas Newman, his music is just so eloquent. Hans Zimmer revolutionized what we do. We have to go shake it up. We have to go and reinvent. For months and months, it really feels like you're going to fail. Proving yourself is a great force. There is a chemical high. Pirates, it's like Led Zeppelin played by an orchestra. What can the audience really feel? It doesn't matter how you get that. It's whether it's got substance. Standing on the podium and hearing it for the first time. I guess it's like seeing your child for the first time being born. Film music is the symphonic music of today. How do you make the audience feel like they're coming home? Your mind is connecting those dots. Film music has changed fairly radically. There's sort of a new renaissance going on. It's so visceral. It's incredibly powerful. You can't say enough about how exciting that is. It's the soundtrack to the Screen Brum Show, because that is what you are listening to. We are live. We are live. This is actually happening right now. This is not a drill. We are live from Birmingham, the heart of the United Kingdom, and in Digbeth, the heart of Birmingham. Of course, if you're listening on the podcast or Listen Again feature, this is not happening live. Do not phone in. You may, you will still be charged. No, you won't be charged. Because we are interested in hearing what you think. This is the Screen Brum Show here on Brum Radio, where we talk about anything with a screen, whether it be a film, a TV, computer game, anything you like. And we want to know what it teaches us about life. And of course, we do that in the company of people who know what they're talking about. Um, The first one of those that I have with me this week is Mr. Tim Wilson, my co-host. Hello, Tim. Hello, I love how we always say you're in the company of people who know what they're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is true enough. I'm certainly not going to say any... I'm, not, I'm going to try not to say anything embarrassingly um, technical in this show and be shown up because we have a musicologist with us today. Yeah, that trumps anything, doesn't it? Exactly. In terms of what's out there uh, in and this I will, room. I will introduce said musicologist in a moment. But before I do that, I want to um, try a technical thing we've never done before. This is a marvel. This is a live... Right here live satellite right link 
to um, Lucy Beth, our other contributor, who's not in on a different time zone with us. So let's try this. Um, Earth to Lucy Beth. Earth to Lucy Beth. Can you hear us? Receiving. Oh. Receiving. Oh, that's good. That is good. Lucy is, is she's a she's a long way. She's about, well, I don't know, three metres from us. Three metres, but in a whole other dimension. A whole other dimension. This is because yeah. we have a very full studio today. Not only do we have uh, Lucy here in the other room, um, but we do have um, Tim here, and we have uh, our third and most exciting guest um, which is, um, sorry, have I overstated that? Um, which is Dr. Matt Lawson. Hello, Doctor. Good afternoon. Um, is, should I call you Dr. Matt or is Matt okay? Matt's absolutely fine. You'll realise that Blake does this with every, every academic yeah. or doctor we have on the show. Is it? Do you prefer Doctor or do you prefer your first name or but, Dr. Matt? Because or, I'm terrified that one day someone's really pompously go, I did not spend three years studying my PhD so that you could call me Mr. Or Matt. Three years, that's optimistic. <laughs> well, there you go. There we go. That is pretty optimistic. <laughs> um, and yeah. the, the other thing, that the, the reason that we're all slightly excited and giddy as well as the fact that it's Friday is the fact that we also have even more people in the studio with us this week. We have um, our, um, we have a photographer who's, who's taking pictures of us as well. So if, if we suddenly stop and look like we're pre us, sound like we're preening ourselves and, uh, and looking in the window. That's what we are doing. Um, so um, say hello to Tom. Tom Kavanagh, yes. photographer extraordinaire. Um, he's ph photographing us. Not that we're showing off about. We have outed but, you. <laughs> um, so here we are, um, scrum, uh, Screen Brum on the Brum Radio Show. No, the way around. Um, and um, what we're going to be doing with uh, Dr. Matt is talking about film soundtracks. Now, I know that we always talk about film soundtracks on the show, and that is the basis of it, but we're going to be doing it from a very specific focus this week, and that is because um, well, uh, Dr. Matt is an expert. So in what way are you an expert, Matt? Have I, uh, have I overstated that? Oh, no pressure now, is there? Um, <laughs> yeah, well, I've, I've always been fascinated by film scores, so when I did my undergraduate degree, film, film music became my kind of specialism, went on to do a master's degree and a PhD in film music just became a passion and I'm lucky enough to be able to study and teach it as a career now so and you've written a book about it I have 100 greatest film scores released with a co-author Larry McDonald from America and um, that was released last September a very very accessible book um, kind of not too academic very very accessible if if you're kind of a member of the general public that's got an interest in film and film scores uh, but doesn't want the really kind of in-depth note by note analyses of the film scores it's uh, it's ideal so 100 film scores very very difficult to choose which films went in there and i'm sure we'll discuss the uh, the rationale behind that later yeah well i mean the other thing that's good to know uh, as having a musicologist is we can now finally answer some of these questions definitively for example the beatles the stones which is best Beatles. Thank you. Okay, good. That's the kind of hard-hitting analysis <laughs> that you can expect from the show today. So tune in and um, and listen in for the next two hours, but also tweet in. If you are on Twitter, at Screen Brum, you can contact us and let us know what you think of the choices that we're going to be talking about, and also what film scores, you know, the ones that do it for you. Maybe the first one that you fell in love with. Maybe the first film score that made you realise that this is something that adds a huge amount to the film, something that really affected you as a child. Um, we um, we ha all have our own personal kind of emotional responses to films. So it'd be fascinating to hear yours. So at Screen Brum, you can also email us, info at screenbrum.co.uk. I think we're on Facebook as well, aren't we, Tim? 
Yeah, at screen, uh, Facebook, which is Screen Brum, you'll find us. So if you have an internet connection... And um, Instagram. You can contact, and Instagram, yes. We're on Letterboxd as well. I don't even know what that is, but um, that's another thing we're on. So basically, let us know what you think. And we're, of course, going to be playing some of the best music as well. So we'll be doing that shortly, but I do want to start off first by actually defining what we mean by a soundtrack um, Matt, because I know that might sound like a stupid question um, and people have accused me of being stupid for asking it, but I don't think it is that, because, for example, would you count a soundtrack album which has got songs that pre-existed um, that are placed into the soundtrack? Does that count as a score, as your point of view? I think it's the whole definition between a soundtrack and a score, like you just said. To me, the term score suggests orchestral, original music, where a soundtrack can encompass everything from pre-existing popular music to to uh, original orchestral music. And I think those two terms are kind of not really synonyms. I think soundtrack is the sound in a film, whether that's pre-existing music, whether it's on-screen music, whether it's original score, whereas the term score, to me, really evokes images of John Williams sat in a studio with, with an orchestra uh, writing original music. What I should say, um, if you are, uh, if you're interested to know more about this, another thing you can do as well as listen to us is the trailer we played at the beginning of the show. There is from a film called Score the Movie, um, which is all about um, the film score process, and it's a fascinating insight actually into how these things are done as well. Because that's the other thing about this, Matt, is does a, a score have to be written specifically for the film? Do you think to, to be counted as such? I don't think so. I mean, there's there's many films that have uh, music made up of pre-existing songs. Things like Guardians of the Galaxy, for example, which uses mm-hmm. pre-existing popular music, is a is a hugely successful um, soundtrack. Um, Stranger Things, the Netflix show, has got a mixture of original '80s style retro music and songs from the 1980s. So, um, my personal preference is original music. I think I think music that's written specifically for a visual can be kind of a, be a bespoke experience for the audience, having mm. that music, that original music that's specifically meant for that visual. But sometimes, um, and I'm sure we can all think of examples, having music that wasn't written for the visual, when, when combined with that visual, can create something um, quite memorable. Well, I mean, this is another thing which, which I'm fascinated by is, is this is going to, another pompous question, is it, ac- is it music or is it something else? Because... If music is is been made, you know, music as we normally understand it is, is to be listened to. This is music that's written to be to be watched. So is it is it something other than music? Is it music? I when I'm teaching film music, I often I often say that a film score should be like a football referee. In that if it's a successful one, you shouldn't really notice it. Mm. Um, but that goes against everything I do as a career as a hobby as a passion because I want to hear film music I want to understand when I'm watching a film what the music's doing Um, there are certain composers where the music is foregrounded perhaps a little too much in a film and becomes the primary thing that we see and hear and it can be a bit overpowering at times Mr Zimmer Um, (laughs) you know and but I think I think it depends on the film as well I mean I'm thinking of Films like the Lord of the Rings trilogy, for example, where sometimes the music is really sensitively placed under dialogue and it's there, but we're not really listening to it, but it adds to the mm-hmm. adds to the experience. But then there's the lighting of the beacon scene where Howard Shaw gets to write three or four minutes of music that is really foregrounded because we've got visuals, we've got pan- uh, panoramas across mountains and, and the music is kind of knocking you back in your cinema seat. Mm. So um, I think film music is there to be listened to, there to be heard. 
but it's not necessarily a bad thing if sometimes it takes a back seat because there's all these other elements of cinema such as dialogue, costumes, cinematography, lighting that, that you know, deserve their time on screen as well. And I would also argue that the silences between the scores, the sil silences between the music help make the music even more powerful when it needs to be as well. You know, I'm, you know, I always think that that's a really important part of the sound of a film, mm. sometimes when there's no music too. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and um, a lot cheaper for the filmmaker. Um, <laughs> let's, uh, um, let's let's play some music before we get to um, to talking about some specific ones. Um, I want to start off with one of your choices, um, Matt, which was City Lights. Very good. Why did you Why did you choose this particular one? Purely because it's the earliest example of uh, music in the book from 1931. It was written by Charlie Chaplin, and when when he said Charlie Chaplin, film composer, some people might sit up and think, "What? He did everything in this film, didn't yeah, he?" Yeah, he did, and some some people argue it was for so he could receive more more credit and just adding his name to the credits in several different places but um yeah purely purely i think it's interesting to listen to to one of the earliest examples the earliest example in the book you know it's it's cinema is pushing 100 years old now mainstream cinema and um it's just interesting to hear what film music was like in 1931 let's have a listen to it so this is the flower girl from uh, city lights or it will be if i turn the fader up Too much talking about Hans Zimmer, not enough paying attention to when the track's going to end. Yeah, sorry, there. I was just—we were just discussing <laughs> what what was said previously. So what we had <laughs> there was uh, the Flower Girl, uh, La Violetta, by Charlie Chaplin from uh, City Lights. Charlie Chaplin, who did pretty much everything in that film. So you're saying it's the first, the first soundtrack then. Yeah, well, the, the first soundtrack in the book, certainly 1931. And the interesting thing is, despite him crediting, it, crediting himself as the composer, actually, he hummed and whistled ideas, and Arthur Johnston served as an orchestrator who basically did all the work for him. <laughs> so uh, despite having his name in the credits on several occasions, Charlie Chaplin just whistled the main themes and got the orchestrator to do all the work for him, which is, which is nice. That is, that is pretty much what I do here on this show as well. I whistle the main themes, and Tim... Does everything else for me? Don't forget Lucy. Uh, yes, uh, yes. I, I'm, she's out of sight, out of mind on this one. I think, uh, I th sorry, I think the interesting thing about the score we've just heard there is it it's, it's sounds so um, of its time, doesn't it? It mm. sounds like a soundtrack from the 1930s. It's it's very classical in style. It's very inoffensive, if if that's an appropriate term to use. It's it, it's 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 just nice, and I, I hesitate to use the word nice with music, but it doesn't. It's just nice to listen to it, and you can't. It doesn't have the same maybe emotional impact that the later scores from the golden age of Hollywood began to have. But I think it's just that unusual um, at the start of sound and film being synchronised together. Well, that's the thing is, it sounds like a piece of music. Um, it, it it works perfectly well as such without knowing. You know, if you didn't know that was part of a film, you wouldn't. It wouldn't mean anything. You know, yeah, it's yeah. it's perfectly separate. Whereas some of the stuff I think we may play later is much more. You know, you wouldn't you wouldn't listen to you know, possibly Hans Zimmer um, in isolation or in, in, in Tim's case, I suspect, at all. Um, but, um, but yeah, we'll, 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 we'll talk about that. So that's the, the earliest one in the book. Um, do you want to move on and, uh, and tell us, have you got a, uh, a, a, a personal favourite or would you like, what would you like to talk about next? I have got a personal favourite and it's very, very cliched and stereotypical and, and my colleagues that might be listening in will, will know that John Williams is by far my favourite film composer, and I know that's such a boring, stereotypical, cliched choice to say it's John Williams is my favourite. 
but I think he, <laughs> he, he's earned it. We had to be really careful with his book not to make it a book of John Williams scores. It could um, be so easy to I do. Think, I think we got it down to I think we got it down to around ten in the end. Um, <laughs> in fact, I'll just quickly ten, check how many. Ten percent of all the best film scores are by John Williams. That's amazing. Pretty much. I mean, let me just double check how many how many we actually got it down to in the end. We had. Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Empire of the Sun, E.T., Jaws, Jurassic tick, Park, Red of the Lost Ark, Schindler's tick. List, Star Wars, Superman. Is and there anyone else who's done as many just um, hit action movie, sci-fi movie, just general, yeah, basically? I don't think there's anyone else that's prolific. In the same year as well, the, the thing that always gets me is 1977. Starks. He released Close Encounters and Star Wars in the same year, and those two scores are just some of the finest film scoring of all time. But it's neither of those two, which is my firm favourite, actually. I've got to go with the cover of the book. It's E.T. Um, it's just one of my mm. absolute favourites. Um, I just think it does so much in terms of emotionally grasping the audience. Um, the final scene, particularly, when, when he's kind of leaving planet Earth. and <laughs> Yeah. See, tears are flowing in the studio. It's, I it's, tell you what, everyone, everyone, everyone oh. in, uh, listening at home is humming it right now. So I'm going to put a little bit of it on, and we'll we'll, we'll just have a little, a little. <laughs> Tim, calm down. It's okay. It's okay. He he he's he's fine. He came back in ET too. Did you not see that one? It was less successful. Um, let's have a listen. On. Uh, there's a danger that we will end up not having enough conversation and just Main, playing music. Mainstream music, not in 4-4, ladies and gentlemen. It's good. I like it. It's fantastic. Mm. So this, that's the end credit sequence from uh, John Williams' score to the extraterrestrial E.T., one of his many collaborations with Steven Spielberg. And there really are collaborations, aren't they, when they yeah, work I mean, together? I, I think it was still, certainly it was the case a few years ago, last time I fact-checked it, but um, is it the case that only one Spielberg film hasn't been scored by John Williams? Two, I think. Two, is it now? Yes, because Thomas Newman did Bridges Spries with, uh, with him, and it's um, Colour Purple, isn't it? With, yeah, uh, yeah, that's it, yeah. yeah. And the, um, the, the one thing I know about their relationship was apparently when John Williams... Uh, initially played him the score for Jaws Steven Spielberg was like yeah that, that, that's a joke so tell me play me the real score and it's like no really because as Tim says what the, what's amazing about that one as well is just how much silence there is isn't it mm. dude nothing you know it, it's it's there's, very brave score there's a great moment in Jaws actually if I can go all anecdotal um, uh, in where uh, you know the scene in Jaws where there's everyone thinks there's a real shark in the sea and they all they all have to mm. evacuate the sea the music doesn't play there, so if you're if you're attuned to what's happening in the score with the light motif, the music doesn't play when this shark fin is in the water because it's not a real shark. Yeah. It's just a kid with um, a kind of fin on his back. Yeah. So we only hear the music when the uh, when the actual real shark is heard. I think the there is one other point in the film where you the shark appears but the music doesn't mm. um, but I can't remember the detail of that but yeah oh. amazing collaboration Spielberg and Williams um, of course things like Schindler's List as well there's another kind of anecdote there where Spielberg offered him the of course offered him the commission to do the score for Schindler's List and John Williams said to him I can't do this John you need a uh, I can't do this Stephen you need a better composer and Spielberg replied I know I do John but they're all dead <laughs> <laughs> so. Well, that's a way to motivate someone, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and, and of course, the score for that is—it's heartrending, isn't oh, it? Oh, it's, it's incredible. You know, just a solo violin. I mean, yeah. it's once just, you hear it's, that, you. It's, it's, it's the thing with Schindler's List is it had to be. I mean, I've kind of discussed this in the past in lectures. How do you, as a composer, with a blank slate, write music for a film based on the Holocaust or on some other kind of really traumatic experience? I mean, it must be incredibly difficult, even for a composer as skilled as John Williams, to 
not be too over sentimental and kind of schmaltzy with with a topic like that. So mm. I think I think he really was successful with with the score for that. And also the influences he put into there because there's, there's a lot of sort of traditional Jewish music sort of interwoven with that as there well. Is, yeah, there? there's uh, there's uh, kind of children's choirs singing the famous scene where they stood up, uh, Schindler stood up on the hill watching the um, watching the ghetto being being kind of destroyed, and there's there's a kind of a, a children's uh, choir singing a Jewish folk song. It's really, really um, effective, and that's where we see the girl in the red coat for the first time as well. But the, the thing with that, which which comes back to the, my sort of central question with all this, is when I listen to that music, I listened to that score recently, and I, and I couldn't really hear it as music in quite the same way. I mean, do you do you find that when you listen to to film scores, are you able to listen to them purely from a musical point of view, or or, or are you ever? Tied up with it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because I'm, I'm going to a film music concert tonight, so that's that's a good chance to test out that theory. <laughs> but, but I think the difference there is I've still got a visual because I've got an orchestra to, to look at. Um, I don't think I want to listen to film scores just as music. I think I think part of the enjoyment of listening to film scores, certainly when I'm sat on the train or a bus, is closing my eyes and imagining the visual that goes with it and and trying to picture what's happening in this in the film at this point. Mm. I think some film music can stand alone as film music, but I think I think imagining the visual and putting your own story to it is is, is part of the fun, really. Mm. I'll let you into a little admi- um, admission. Um, one of the things I always used to do when I was when I was single, and I used to go on city breaks in Europe. Yeah, I used to have a I used to think of the film uh, the places I were and films that were shot in those cities and go to locations where a piece of soundtrack would come up. So Berlin comes to mind, and one of my f- films I talk about is Born Supremacy, and there's, there are bits in Berlin around Alexanderplatz, and I used to ha- I had the Born Supremacy soundtrack in my ears as I was walking around parts of Berlin, thinking I was Jason Bourne. Um, yeah. And, the, you know, there's, like, little things like that that I like to do. I was, in, um, I was in Salzburg last year, and I absolutely refused to listen to the sound of music when I was there, so I, I think I'd, uh, I'd be more keen to do that in certain locations. It's about, it's about certain situations and yeah. Locations, yeah. You think of the films the, the, and the soundtracks yeah. where you go to places. In fact, I, I, was, I, was on a, I was on a very cheap coach going through New Zealand, actually, and I admit I put the Lord of the Rings score on at one point. So, yeah. There is nothing wrong with that. Uh, the Lord of the Rings score is, I think, absolutely fantastic. There's a show of it in um, Mosley Park recently where yeah. they showed the film in the park, which is a beautiful uh, city park here in Birmingham, with the full orchestra as well. Oh, God. That's um, so good. Yeah, yeah I mean, we're we're big fans of Howard Shaw on this show. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, I was just saying before uh, the show, I, I saw I saw the Lord of the Rings live to film at the Royal Albert Hall, and Howard Shaw himself was there doing a pre-concert talk. So which was incredible. That's not bad, is it? Oh, do you know what? I'm That's gonna, pretty good. I'm going to have to put a bit of Howard Shaw. Well, hang on, um, Lucy has a uh, request, so we're just uh, just waiting for the satellite to get in position. Um, <laughs> uh, and now, Lucy, we can we we can we can hear from you. Go. Oh, sorry, no, it, it wasn't that important, really. Um, but just saying, um, I've been to quite a lot of events like that where there's the film screened with the live orchestra. Or So an uh, amazing one last year was Johnny Greenwood presenting Phantom Thread with live orchestra, and I've seen 2001, and There Will Be Blood, and quite a few um, with live scores. And... It's such an incredible experience, and I don't think it um, detracts from either. You get to experience it in two ways at once. Um, I I do listen to scores on their own without the film a lot. At times, I listen to scores more than I listen to bands or solo (laughs) musicians. Um, Well, um, and of course, that experience as well. Enjoy it 
separately. Yeah. Mm. The, the, the experience that you, you talk about there is of watching the orchestra and the film at the same time, of course, it, that's also how they're recorded as well, isn't mm. it? They're actually, you know, when, you, when the orchestras record this, they're watching the director's cuts. Well, yeah, the rushes are going in the background yeah, or whatever. So that they can, they can get the, the, the timing exactly like. Mm. And, and that's really, I, I, I find that fascinating. I'd love to watch that I happening. I think it's amazing, that skill to be able to... Because sometimes it is just the, a of the live music. Yeah. Really, that's a skill. Yeah. Uh, the one at the Albert Hall, the, the conductor had obviously had the score, but also had the uh, a screen with the hit points on and kind of saw a white line going across the screen. And if he was too fast or too slow, he had to slow down so that the white line for the hit point yeah. arrived at the same time as the, the film on the screen. Fascinating. So um, you're off to see that tonight at the, what is it, the Symphony Hall in Birmingham? Symphony Hall in Birmingham tonight, yeah, City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra doing a night at the Oscars, so just a, a collection of film scores, plenty of John Williams in there, Schindler's List and Star Wars, in fact. Fantastic. The greatest hits. Absolutely um, fun. Um, we're going to um, move on. We started at the at the earliest point in the book, um, but we'll move on to perhaps a little later. Um, we've talked about Harold Shaw and we've talked about... Um, Lord of the Rings. So let's have a little burst from the Lord of the Rings soundtrack. Whoa. This is from The Fellowship of the Ring, the first one, uh, and it's the Council of Elrond. That little motif. That's that. This little bit here we're hearing. Oh, Mr. Frodo. Exactly. You hear that? It evokes that. You know, we hear that beginning. When it's concerning hobbits, and they can just bring that in. The hobbits are coming on screen. This is a happy bit. It's it's fantastic the way that these things work. Yep. I think that little motif there, it just evokes to me so much the, the English countryside. And, of course, that's what he was going for, because mm. the Shire is, in effect, the, the um, kind of English countryside that Tolkien remembers growing up in, just south of Birmingham, in fact, wasn't it? That's um, right, yeah. There's a the local mill, isn't there, somewhere? That, Sir Hill Mill. trying to reopen it, aren't they? Well, it's, it, it is, it's, a, it's a place they do have reenactions and stuff there. It is, it's meant to be where he based some of... Um, Earth, um, or Thancon and stuff, and it's and yeah. One of the interesting things, a little little fact there. I went there on a school trip recently, and um, Sam Gamgee uh, is a real person from Birmingham, inventor of cotton wool. There you yeah. go. There you mm. go. Um, that's where he got the name from. Um, so yeah, fantastic. There, the Howard Shaw score from All the Rings. The track you heard there was the Council of Elrond, which uh, com- um, features the theme for Aragon and Arwen. Do that pronunciation right, right? Anyway, anyway, so um, we're here listening to the Screen Brum Show here on Brum Radio, and we're joined by uh, Dr. Matt Lawson, author, uh, co-author of the book "100 Greatest Film Scores." Um, you've talked about the first one in the book, the earliest one, which was "City Lights." What would you like to to shout about next? Should we go to the latest one? That would be an that's, interesting comparison, wouldn't that's it? That's a good look. That's a good link. Interstellar, Hans Zimmer. Mm. Um, absolute polar opposites in terms of film score. So the first one we heard, City Lights, was a very jovial waltz that could have could be placed in any film, I think, over a dance scene. Very inoffensive, like I said. Um, the opposite of inoffensive is offensive, isn't it? I'm hesitant to call Hans Zimmer's scores offensive. <laughs> go for um, it, go for it. I mean, no, no that's, that's unfair. I have very particular views about Hans Zimmer's music, and I'm sure um, that could be a discussion point at some point. Uh, he speaks very highly of you. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I kind of mourn the loss of melody in film music. Um, I think, you know, John Williams is, is famed for kind of epic 
cinematic melodies. I mean, it's it's a sound that he's he's made his own. Really, it's kind of he's a twentieth and twenty first century Wagner in terms of the melodies and light motifs that he uses. Hans Zimmer is very much in the opposite direction. It's rhythmic, it's percussive, it's more soundscapey than than musical and melodic. And um, yeah, I, I I just think that <coughs> sometimes it can be a little overpowering. But that's not to say that he isn't an amazing composer. And the fact that we're referencing him as being in the book of 100 greatest film scores suggests that you know I hold him in very high esteem. And his score for Interstellar has some absolutely incredible yeah. moments. Um, and th- uh, the one, ones that spring to mind are the scene on the, on the kind of water planet where the, the mountain of waves are moving towards the, uh, the, the, the cast and the, ch- the kind of grand church organ kicks in and it just, it just, you know, you can feel it in your body in the cinema mm-hmm. and, and that depth in the music is, is something that's, that's uh, really impressive. And yeah. I, yeah. I mean, the thing with 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 Hans Zimmer is, is is it's interesting. You bring you know we bring it up to the date is, is as you say you know it's it's it's, <coughs> it's almost you know so it's almost not music. But would you be Ooh. you'd be less inclined to listen to it in isolation? I, I wouldn't say it's not musical. I would say no. Obviously, that's I would say he's he's very musical. It's just he he. he embraces that kind of notion that emotions and feelings are what he's trying to put across yeah and, and, and i think that works really really well in the nolan with his nolan collaboration well the one the one that really jumps out to me is is his score for dunkirk which is you know because last in that year he did Dunkirk and he also did um whatever it was blade runner 2049 blade runner 2049 wallafish with what Benjamin Wallerfish. That's a good name. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, but what, what happens in the Dunkirk score is, is it's almost just rhythm, isn't it? Da, 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 da. It's almost like a siren going off. And it creates a sense of incredible, you know, nauseating tension. Well, it's like a that's, ticking clock, it's a pulse. Mm. Yeah, that's the whole point, though, it's isn't it? If you're, watching, if you're watching a film about Dunkirk, you, you, you've got to go one of two ways with the score. It's either got to be really uh, intense and make you feel physically, you know, disturbed by what you're seeing, or it has to be the opposite and be incredibly emotionally engaging and, and go for kind of the traumatic, you know, this is war, this is very sad mm. kind of... Um, so I think I think it's a perfectly acceptable score and I love um, I love what happens at the end of the film as well where they slow down Enigma variations to a kind of walking pace when the plane's landing on the beach. That's, that's a really powerful cool. moment. Well, that's another interesting point there, isn't it? Because you're talking about a pre-existing piece of music being kind of repurposed for... Uh, now, is that... You know, is that is there a kind of purist view on that? Are we allowed that as a as a film score? Are we allowed to repurpose things? Absolutely. I, I think the fact that you know it was this very um, patriotic piece of music, isn't it? Enigma Variations, um, and I know we live in very interesting times when it comes to patriotism and nationalism and things like that, which is a topic we probably won't touch on. Probably um, for the best. Yeah, but uh, I think in a Second World War film, I think I think it's an incredibly powerful moment, and it's it's one of those pieces that that really stirs something within the British spirit. I think, and, and to have that uh, that scene slowed down to an almost, um, you know, like I said, not even walking pace, slower than that. I think I think. I can't think of anything more appropriate that could have been used there in terms of original score. And because it has that, uh, because there's a preconception of what that piece of music is and what that piece of music means, it's Elgar, it's the epitome of English classical music. And also the the complete synergy with the visuals, because, of course, the visuals on that is of a Spitfire, which is, you know, used very much in the same kind of way, but a Spitfire which is essentially crashing. Uh, it's completely out of fuel. It's it's out of control. There's no. It's silent. So it's 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 a perfect synergy of those two things, isn't it? it so the, the visuals and the sound both tying up using 
you know, uh, emotional beats we already have from seeing these visuals and these sounds and doing something different with them. Yeah, and it was a, it was a brave choice because it could have, you know, it would have been a fine line. It could very easily have seemed just really hackneyed and cliched and, and this is British, this is the British play and this is British music, look yeah. how British we are and look at, yeah. you know, but I think actually it worked incredibly well. Mm. Um, I mean, I say going back, going out more generally to Hans Zimmer's music, I think that a lot of my enjoyment of Hans Zimmer's music depends on the film that I'm watching. Mm. And because of those um, DC collaborations, no, the films clearly I do not enjoy. So we're talking about like the Batman. Oh, I don't, I wasn't really, I don't mind. Again, that's Nolan. And again, I can, I, I'm, mm. I'm talking about the Man of Steel's of this world mm. and things like that, it's, where it, they're using Zimmer because it's Zimmer. Hmm. It's like they're using Zimmer as a, as a reason rather than to make him part of the, um, whereas Nolan weaves him into the, the dynamics of, a, of the, of the he's, film. He's touring at the minute, isn't he? He's doing, he's doing Birmingham, his hands yeah. are in, um, I can't think when it is now, but he's doing Ma uh, Birmingham, Manchester and London. And he did it last year as well, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm just wondering, see that. I would as well, it doesn't, the dates don't work out for me this year, but I'm just wondering. So I've seen, I've seen a concert of John Williams' music, of course I have. Um, I'm just wondering how that would be different to a concert of Hans Zimmer music. I mean, the John Williams concert was a very typically sterile concert hall experience, you know, that the audience was sat there in silence, the orchestra was there, the conductor was conducting, lights went down, music was played. Hans Zimmer, I imagine, is going to be a much more visual show. I mean, I don't know if he's having film clips behind him, um, but he's kind of, a, I don't know if it's a one-man show or whether he's got other musicians around him. He's I, got a full orchestra, full orchestra full there as well. element to it as well. There we go. So, and, and I imagine and the lighting will do a lot more in the yeah. Hans Zimmer concert. He's going for arenas, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. So I, I just, I'm sure it's a very, very impressive, um, will be a very impressive show, but um, I don't know if I, w I, I could sit and listen to a, two and a half hours of Hans Zimmer music as much as I would be willing to sit and listen to the more melodic style of John I'd, Williams. I'd be willing, definitely. So, um, the seeing live scores performed, um, it's, it's a really special experience. See, I think even more so than seeing them with the film um, in terms of when um, musicians perform with the film in the background. Like I've seen Clint Mansell a few times now and he he, he makes it such a, a special thing it he makes it like a gig and mm. um he will have clips in the background from the film or graphics um usually rather than the film so you get to really appreciate it as a piece of music um separate and individual so i do often listen to scores more than i listen to music musicians as themselves and Clint really brings that out and because there's been such a separation um of musicians coming away from their background in bands or as singer-songwriters or things like that and creating these really incredible scores for films that they it's often not what you expect as well isn't it i mean clint mansell is you know he's he's extremely uh, accomplished and um and successful in a uh, film score now he, he started out in pop elite itself which were a really um Quite yeah, you know, a local band, but very uh, you know, quite a kind of classic, not not you know, lush orchestral stuff in this. And the other uh, example, which I know Lucy will be very excited to hear me mention, is Nick Cave. Um, Nick Cave is, is Lucy's a big fan of him. Has and he scored a number of very he's very westerny. But you have a particular point of on, on Nick Cave as as a kind of narrative performer, don't you, Lucy? Yeah, well, Nick Cave with Warren Ellis. Um, 
think it's always important to kind of join those two together because Warren Ellis is as much a driving force of it, if not more at times, because he's done his own scores separate from Cave as well. Um, that's a difficult one because I've kind of had that from the other side as well, which has been really fascinating. Um, on the last tour, um, they used a part of the score that they made for Wind River as their intro music before they came on stage. So they played that before the score came on release. And so that's been a really fascinating sort of reversal. And so when I saw the film, I was distracted by the music mm. because I knew that first. And so it was kind of, that was the distraction. Whereas it's usually the other way around when the imagery can distract you from hearing the score. So that that was a really interesting way of seeing yeah, I was, that. I was just thinking, um, comparing the two, when I went to see Lord of the Rings live to live to screen at the Royal Albert Hall and the a generic film music concert, I think I actually enjoyed the concert without the visual more because I almost found when I was watching the Lord of the Rings score at the Albert Hall, I was interested in the musicians. I wanted to watch what they were doing and, and the film was almost a distraction. I, I kind of, I've seen the film, I've seen the film with the music and as amazing an experience as it was, I felt that actually I wanted to watch what the musicians were doing. And without the sound effects and the dialogue at the same level that we used to in the final cut of the film, it almost seemed like the two had a bit of a disconnect at times. And, and whilst it was in sync, without the sound effects, the music often felt a little bit kind of misplaced and, and too foregrounded. And actually, I've come to the conclusion that as lovely as an experience that was to see the two sync together, I'd prefer just to watch film music in a concert environment and the film as a whole. And actually, film live to screen is something that I've not quite got on board with yet. It's a great idea, but I think without the sound effects and the dialogue at the same level and getting the mix at the same level as, as you get in the final film, um, that kind of, it, it just skews it. And, and I don't know, it, it just seems a little bit off at times. And yeah. Well, what do you think at home? Let us know. Tweet us at Screen Brum uh, and let us know what you think. Let us know any soundtracks that um, really have, uh, have, have made you come to life. And uh, we talked about Hans Zimmer. We've talked about Interstellar. So let's play uh, a little uh, bit of his soundtrack for that. And this is the Cornfield Chase. Uh, and this is quite tense, right? Let's have a listen to this. Hans Zimmer. He did the going for gold theme tune, don't you know? That is intense, isn't it? That's Hans Zimmer's Cornfield Chase, which is one of the uh, films that you can find in the 100 top scores for, um, by, written by Matt Lawson. Yeah, just a couple of uh, couple of anecdotes, if I may, from the book on this. Um, when, when, the, when Christopher Nolan first 
uh, appointed Hans Zimmer to write the music for this, he said to Zimmer, I'm going to give you an envelope with a letter in it, one page. I'm going to tell you with a fable at the centre of the story. You work for one day and then play me what you've written. So right. one one page of the of the story behind the film was all that Zimmer got from from Christopher Nolan at that point, and Zimmer actually said as well the textures, the music, and the sounds, and the things we sort of created has seeped into other people's movies a bit. So it's time to reinvent. The endless string ostinatos need to go by the wayside. The big drums are probably also in the bin. Oh well, you know he's uh, he's certainly got a strong sense of his own uh, influence there, then <laughs> at least. Um, so yeah, has he broken? Has Sam Zimmer broken film scores? Um, getting lots of of tweets in. Thank you for that. And we we're getting a lot of um, people talking about how you know films have led them to music and vice versa. So um, uh, Uncle Rupert has tweeted in saying um, he's fallen totally head over heels for Nicholas Patel's If Beale Street Could Talk score, and and he hasn't seen this film. But he has, or even seen a trailer. But he has fallen in love with the score. And I think what's interesting then is what happens when he watches that film. You know, when when he's in already got the score out of a different context. I'm going to talk about my mum for a minute. Um, is she listening? She she's actually on a bus down here. She's going to the concert with me tonight. Oh right. Okay. Um, well, when you're listening on podcast, uh, yep. Mrs. Lawson, hello. So um, yeah, I, I took a originally. I was meant to be taking somebody else to a to a Harry Potter film music concert here in Birmingham. Um, but they unfortunately couldn't make it. So rather than waste a ticket, I said to my mum, do you fancy coming? She's never been to a live classical music concert before. Just not that she dislikes it, just never had that experience. Mm So I said, yeah, why not? I said, it's Harry Potter. She'd never read a single page of the book, never seen any of the films, had absolutely no interest in Harry Potter. It's all, you know, silly, magical stuff. Sat through the concert. As soon as we got back up home, she said, I need to borrow all of the films. And she sat and watched them over four days back to back and she loves it now and the film music is what got her into that world and it had such an impact on her in the concert hall that she simply had to see the films that accompanied the music so an unusual way of doing things admittedly listening to the score and then watching the films um, but she just loved the music so much that she simply had to see the story that went with it Fantastic. Um, lots of lots of people having the same kind of experience. We've had um, so um, Uncle Rupert talks about um, listening to Clint Mansell scores. Uh, we've had a tweet from someone um, Akiko, who is Mardi Mustika, who said uh, they've never seen Amelie, but. Um, they know and like the score. And that's, you're a big fan of that one, aren't you? Too? I love Emily, yeah. Mm, and then the score as well, it's great. Um, Steve Spice has tweeted in that, uh, that he's watched Under the Skin as a direct result of how much he enjoyed Micah Levy's score. Now, Micah Levy's score... Was it Mika Levy? Is it Mika? I don't know. I do apologise um, to whoever, uh, what the correct pronunciation is. But that's all right. the, um, the score for that is something... I'm going to play a little excerpt of it now because... This one is something I think is um, maybe something we can talk about as a, as a development of film scores, which is, right, this, this, I don't mean this in an insulting way, but what I'm going to say is, is, is this, what I'm about to play, is it music, right? Now, I, I, I stress, I don't mean that um, in a critical way. I mean, is it something else? Just listen to this. That goes on for about a minute before something else happens in this track. This track is called Mirror to Vortex, uh, and it's from the soundtrack to Under the Skin. And it is fantastic, and it is incredibly atmospheric and incredibly you know, frightening and, and powerful. But would you listen to it in isolation? Yes. No, maybe you would. Absolutely not. No, there we go. I mean, it's... it's, it's, a, it's uh, only question. from the point of view that I wouldn't have listened to it in isolation had I not seen the film. Hmm. 
Yeah. But you've just pointed. You you've just picked out. Oh, hang on, here's just, the panic bit. You've just picked out some uh, some noise. All right, which is not. Uh, this is the first which is one bit of the soundtrack. I know, and, and it builds into something. It's absolutely. If you were just picking that, if you were just picking, so I, I I don't know if you're still playing it because I haven't got my headphones on. I am. Um, yeah. Hang on. Oh, no. there was a little bit yeah. of violin there. Oh, there it goes. Hang yeah. on, Lu- Lucy's desperate to 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 add Go something Lucy. in. Lucy. I've noticed to say I've listened to it quite regularly. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I really don't want to. I don't want to sound like um, I'm saying it's bad. Of course I'm not. Yeah. Um, but it's it's just it's you know it it serves a purpose in the in the context of the film. I will say this. You know, you're pointing at that one bit, but much like um, and I say, there's an absolute synergy to what Zin- Zimmer does here with Interstellar. Zin- Zimmer's soundtrack has five notes, which he does in different ways. In this film, uh, the whole introduction is based on three notes. And it's done in a chromatic. It's a chromatic motif, and it's about that. Sounds technical. And it, I don't understand that. But. Okay, I won't go into explaining too much. And the, but the idea is, it's about. Un, it's being un, Levy's score is uncompromising mm, throughout, and it's, a, it's it's mainly a string-led soundtrack. And its simplicity is what drives it. And it's it comes from the same zenith as a lot of horror horror movie soundtracks, based on simplicity, based on s- small numbers of instruments, a lot of strings. Again, you could trace that right back to Bernard Herrmann if you really wanted to go down that whole route of looking at strings and horror mm. horror motifs. But you know, Bernard Herrmann, for for anyone who doesn't know, um, but, the possibly the the most famous soundtrack of all time. That must be in the book. And right? Psycho. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've got a great anecdote about that as well. If, Ooh, if ta- I, uh, I was just going to say, you, you mentioned Clint Mansell, all right, mm-hmm. and I think that Mika Levy. Um, it reminds me of Clint Mansell because I think that the idea of simple motifs, that's kind of what Clint Mansell does all the, uh, mm. as, as a strength of his work. You think of the soundtrack to Moon, again, it's the same thing, the piano motif. Mm. It sets the emotion of the characters. It sets the kind of desolation of... Um, of where you know the setting up the scene, you know, and the, the sort of the, the, the space station, and again, you know, the, that's that's a, a modernist riff on a two thousand and one idea as well. Mm. There's all sorts of ideas that we are Im- Im- you know, they're not you know that influence these soundtracks, you know. It's a, it's, it's a all evolution of ideas. It is yeah, yeah, a yeah. kind of business. Um, so um, I'm interested in the the psycho anecdote now. So we talked about Bernard Herrmann's. Yeah. Um, so originally Hitchcock was absolutely adamant that there would be no music to that scene. So um, Hitchcock says, do what you like with the score before the Christmas vacation. But only one thing I ask of you, please write nothing for the murder in the shower. That must be without music. <laughs> uh, Herman was apparently astounded and they returned afterwards. Herman then played the same scene to Hitchcock without music and said, you've seen it your way. Let's try mine. I've written something for it. Um, after hearing it, Hitchcock replied, of course, that's the one we'll use. The composer reminded him that he had requested no music and Hitchcock Hitchcock replied dryly, improper suggestion, my boy, improper suggestion. <laughs> and another anecdote, allegedly, allegedly, he also doubled Herman's salary for the film as well after hearing the stabbing motif, but I don't know whether that's accurate or not. Oh, well, um, he certainly deserves it. I think of all the soundtracks that are out there, that, that's probably the most famous, would you say? Yeah, yeah, I actually use that um, scene in my teaching quite a bit when we're talking about unempathetic music, which is um, very... You know, very posh name for basically an empathy is when music or sound doesn't relate to the empathy that we're meant to be feeling in a scene. So the stabbing sounds is empathetic music because it's it's horrific as mm. is a stabbing. And um, but I, I talk I, t- I discuss that scene in relation to the noise of the shower. 
um, which which and a shower the shower the poor lady who's about to uh, meet her demise switches a shower on and we get close with the shower with the water streaming down and that that sound is constant from the moment she starts the shower to the moment she's slumped dead on the floor and then we get another shot of the shower's music and that's called an empathetic sound because it's it's sound or music that doesn't bear any relation to the mood of the scene that we're seeing so it, mm. it continues regardless of, of what's happening so there's this horrific murder happening but the, the sound of the shower is just is just there continuing as if nothing's happened oh. so that 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 mixed with the um the stabbing sounds is quite an interesting use of music and sound on one hand there's something horrific which is literally um you know the strings are stabbing stabbing the lady but the shower the, the, the sound of the water coming from the shower is just a a kind of it's dead noise in the background and just continues regardless of what's happening. I'm thinking of another example of that, um, I'm sure you have many but um, is, uh, recently I was thinking of the, there's a big fight in, in the Blade Runner, the latest Blade Runner scene with Elvis playing in the background and there's just this massive punch up going on whilst Elvis is essentially performing in front of them, ignoring them all, and it's just really jarring. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's, there's plenty of examples. Things like Reservoir Dogs with the ear-cutting-off scene you've got um, stuck in the middle. Uh, yeah. the, end of, <laughs> the end of Doctor Strange, love when the world's been destroyed by nuclear bombs, you've got Dame Vera Lynn's Wheel Meet yeah. Again playing. So the use of, um, music that goes against the narrative is really, really effective and um, can be quite powerful. Uh, a, I'm going to. I've forgotten that. A sympath, uh, a sympathetic. Did you say? An empathetic. An empathetic. I'm going to yeah. remember that now. Every time, every time um, my girlfriend puts on music, uh, I don't like. And an empathetic feeling coming from this. <laughs> uh, let's change it. Um, thank you for your tweets. Getting loads of tweets. Feathers and Wings has approved um, of the uh, soundtrack too. Um, under the skin as a separate uh, thing to be listened to separately uh, they would listen to it as ambient music and they love it um, Film Samurai tweeted in that the Gladiator soundtrack is a perfect example um, it's beautiful to listen to from start to finish as a separate piece of music um, and uh, Akio has also tweeted in again um, the Ex Machina um, as a screen uh, as a soundtrack that got them into watching the film because of the soundtrack. So a lot of people here able to kind of separate them um, and they're probably much cleverer than I am on that score. So um, I, I want to play a little bit more music uh, because we are talking about music and then we'll, we'll, we'll bring on another film. And I want to uh, introduce one of yours, Tim, uh, one of your favourite ones. And I'm interested in this. This is, this is Queen from Flash Gordon um, because this is another area which is bands... Um, so this is songs that are written, but they're written. So like the Queen of Oh Got Four Minute, they write a song for a film. It's not like a, they actually wrote the soundtrack in the same way that all composers write the soundtrack. Mm. They had this. They had the rushes of the film, and they composed to the um, to the sound to the actual screen in the mm. same way that an orchestra would do that. And of course, uh, there was a, there was a slight collaboration at play with Flash Gordon that they were working with a bit with Howard Blake, the composer who did the orchestrations. But most of the time, it's it's very much a it's very much a soundtrack driven by Brian May. You know, it was his his kind of drive as a, he was the main kind of idea behind it. But yeah, nearly everything you hear is done in the same way that an orchestra. What's different from say this in Highlander, which mm. is the other Queen uh, soundtrack, is that they they did just write songs for that. Yeah. This was this was them driving a soundtrack and it was quite and it, it's really cool because again it's a uh, Queen also experimenting with synthesizers in a big way and then you've got the bombast you know the, the Queenie the Queen pomp elements which work very well in oh. the context of the film. Yeah. I mean the film is yeah. let's face it camp. 
Yeah, um, it's camp and it works. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And this also brings in a very in- interesting discussion of high and lowbrow film scores and whether we treat popular music film scores with more contempt than orchestral film scores. And whether, no, I wouldn't know. Whether they're seen <laughs> well, we... as a cheap, a cheap trick to use pop music in film, but that's another... Yeah, I think I don't think we I don't think we have much time for that kind of idea. No, and I I know that Lucy will bring in some examples of um, where musicians. I mean, she talked about Johnny Greenwood already and Nick Cave, and where people who have got a background in bands and I wouldn't say popular music. Sometimes well, popular what, music, Lucy, or, or I don't want to put, music. What, don't want to put words in your mouth. You know? But you talked earlier on about the idea that these guys are kind of used to um, producing a narrative. Um, themselves, you know, that when you're breaking, you know, certain types of rock songs, you're creating a narrative. It's almost like a three-minute story already. So they've got kind of form on that. So Lucy can't hear what I'm saying. <laughs> so apologies, Lucy. I was just talking about the idea of these musicians able to um, create a narrative in their songs already. So they've got kind of experience of doing that before they come to to writing a film score. Yeah. Um so I think it comes within sort of about the last 15 years or so. There's been a real, uh, like quite fast evolution between um, mus- scores for films going from being more of an accompaniment to a element of the narrative itself. And a lot of the people who have done this have come from music backgrounds of being in bands or having their own musical career away from cinema. And they've been sort of the masters of narrative themselves within what they do or their own um, sort of soundscapes or however it is they've created it themselves. So... Um, more independent filmmakers have encouraged people to tell part of their story within their music. And that's even got more widely done now as well. I think there was a real moment of what you just mentioned about like Tarantino and stuff like that, having these popular music things. It It kind of went from there was like, a real s- stage of the not being scores as such, but like cool mixtapes mm. for Tarantino being the obvious one. Yeah. And well, Guardians like of the Galaxy and recently. Yeah. And it kind of reached an endpoint of with Juno. And then there was, um, around the same time, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross came in with their score for Social Network. And that really kind of made this, what had already been going on in smaller films with people like Clint Mansell, um, it kind of made it okay for bigger names to do that. And then that's become a, a much more widely used thing and I think that's really special and with people like um, Nick Cave and Warren Ellis taking it to a much bigger level Fantastic, yeah that is a, I couldn't have put it better myself or indeed um, at all um, so thank you for that Lucy and it's, you know, Even Mika Levy, she, she, she is known for her pop group uh, Mika Shoe and the Shapes 
which were a very uh, pretty cool experimental pop group. Mm. So she did. Uh, she has form in terms of her background as well. I'm, I'm really desperate to play this um, when we're talking about kind of rock um, artists having in. So I want to play the battle theme from Queen. Um, <laughs> those of you uh, listening at home won't see this, but Tim will be dancing hugely around the studio as we play it. So let's have a listen to that. So this is, you know, it's timely because, of course, Queen are performing at the Oscars. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yes. yeah, yeah. Um, but I suspect they won't be playing this. It'd be great, then. Oh, that is so good. That is brilliant. So, sounds like it was going to break into Chariots of Fire at the end. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, uh, and we all approve of that. Another great, great score that probably was quite a terrifying choice because um, we'll be talking about Chariots of Fire, of course. It's Vangelis' score from, from Chariots of Fire, which is a film set in what, the 1920s. Mm. And um, very synthesised and electronic. Must have felt quite anachronistic and odd at the time. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's very, very skilled composer, of course, Vangelis. Vangelis? Vangelis. Vangelis. There we go. Um, I actually put his full name in the book, and we nearly ran out of word count because it's about kind of 40 characters long, Is so right? uh, we were shortened it to Vangelis. Um, but, yeah, synthesised scores. Um, yeah, a brave choice, really, because it's kind of a sound that people weren't used to. We had popular songs being used. We had orchestral music. But when the synthesizers started to arrive... Um, it was it was kind of a very interesting choice, and I think audiences. I don't know how audiences would have reacted to that, really, but I think I think the music carries it. I think you know when you've got a composer as skilled as, as skilled as Vangelis, obviously that's his signature style, the synthesizer. I think regardless of the instrumentation used, the, the the skill of the music can can kind of carry the score, really. Is it is it in the book? It is. It is. It's made the final cut. Yeah. Um, what do you think? Um, well. I was just say, is, is, have you got a, a personal favourite in the book? Is there a, 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 a is there a soundtrack which is scientifically the best? Scientifically, ugh. well, how did but, you how did you um, you know how did you how did you decide? I mean, it's, it's just it about took taste, it right? took a long time. So um, the, the book writing the book itself probably took about two years, but the first year of that was an email conversation backwards and forwards between the publisher and the, uh, my co-author, Larry, in, in America. Uh, the interesting thing is that I'm just in my 30s, just, um, and Larry's... Well, at which end, that's the question. The, the, the right end for now, thankfully. <laughs> um, and Larry's in his 70s. So it, it was a really interesting conversation that kept going backwards and forwards because I was... I was gravitating to the films that I'd grown up with. I was I was very much in the you know the grand epic scale of of I, I, I like to think of it as the second coming of the golden age of Hollywood really because we, we started having these epic films again like Jurassic Park and Titanic and um, you know then into the 21st century with the Lord of the Rings and the Harry Potter series. Whereas Larry was gravitating towards things like Gone with the Wind, Out of Africa, Born Free, mm. things from the 40s, 50s, and 60s that that he maybe grew up with. Um, so I, I mean talking about music and, and kind of scientific reasoning there, there wasn't any in, in all honesty we, we basically came up with our own list of 100 each to start with which then when we joined them together there were maybe 30 or 40 in common so we ended up with um, I don't know maybe 160 170 films and then it was an email conversation backwards and forwards arguing the case for or against why a particular film and, and sometimes it was simply down to more inclusivity so we would we would um, you know, we might originally have had 16 or 17 John Williams scores in there, and we said, right, we need to we need to kind of narrow this down to 10, so we'll have to lose some John Williams. And, and so sometimes, I mean, arguably, arguably maybe some of the films that made it into the final 100 did for reasons of diversity and mm. inclusion, which is, which is fine because it makes it a more interesting read. Otherwise, mm. it would have been the, you know, 
100 greatest John Williams scores. Mm-hmm. Another question is, uh, any films in there, great scores, terrible films? Is that, you know, is that is it possible? I mean, because yes. is it, you know, if you've got... A, you, well, I'm getting nods from, from Lucy. You think, if, do you think there's any films out there with a great, a great score but a terrible film? Can you think of any? Oh, there's quite a few, yeah. I can't think of any because I'm not sure it's possible to be a great film. Uh, sorry, a great score in a bad film. I don't know. I think there's plenty of examples where the film score has become more famous or more well-known than the film. Mm. So, um, you know, things like Dances with Wolves, for example, or even Out of Africa or Born Free. I th- I will all sit- John Williams. <laughs> John Barry, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, all, yeah. all John Barry. And, you know, it's a, a York York lad is John Barry, so um, very close to, to my, my homeland. But... Um, I think I think John Barry's music appears on almost every film score compilation CD and album out there, and I would I would argue the case that 21st century audiences have probably heard his music for Born Free and Out of Africa uh, more than they've seen the film. Yeah, I would um, I would add Jerry Goldsmith's The Haunting, the remake of The Haunting. It's a it's a very silly film, pretty bad, mm. but the the music is classic Goldsmith. You know, a lot of the motifs that we know and love, um, you know, the echoes of Poltergeist. It's like a cross between Basic Instinct and Poltergeist at times. You know, classic, even Basic Instinct, you could argue. I like Basic Instinct as a film, but a lot of people hate it. Mm. But it's, but Jerry Goldsmith's score is bab. Mm. It's, it's very yeah. interesting, though, because now, now, now I think about it, I've never actually thought about this before, but looking through the list of the films in the book, most of them are considered very good films as well. And I wonder if there was some kind of subconscious thing going on there that because the film is good the score is as well yeah and vice versa yeah well it is hard to it is hard but again it comes into this idea that they're not you know they're, they're symbiotic they're interactions aren't they it's not just mm. they're not in isolation if, if a film score was great in a terrible film it you know is it a film score yeah you know, is it almost yeah. Is, it, is it just music you know i know that sounds pompous but i mean i had to i had to actually google and then watch some of the films that larry suggested that made it into the final book i hadn't heard of them admittedly things like tom jones from 1963 oh stanley kubrick classic stanley kubrick is it see that's that's embarrassed me live on I'm air right on that aren't i um, stanley kubrick i'm not I, yeah I'm on, on golden pond which is a lovely film mm. I, I had to I had to go and watch that um the red pony from 1949 Oh, I never know that so, one. you know, these have these have made it into the book. Um, the Red mm. Violin, nineteen ninety nine. The Robe from nineteen fifty three. Mm. These are films that I, when Larry suggested them, I said I'm happy to go with it. But I'm going to be honest. I'm going to have to go and actually listen to the score and watch the film because I've, you know, mm. and that was the really interesting kind of diversity that we had there with the films that we were suggesting. Mm. I can offer up some more John Barry films, which are great scores um, that aren't great films. I can think of uh, what is it, the Demi Moore one from the nineties? Um, is it G.I. Jane or Scarlet something? Letter? Oh yeah. That's a bad film, uh, and that's a John Barry film. And then Howard the Duck. <laughs> Howard the Duck. Howard uh, the Duck is John Barry. You see, I, I, I'm going to play some John he's Barry. He's done now so much good stuff. Well, because you know, regular like, listeners to the show will know that um, you know when whenever we're asking, you know, we, obviously there's no such thing as the best soundtrack. There's not no such thing as the best film. That's obvious. We we all know that. Let's let's move on. But if someone asks me what my favourite film soundtrack is, it's you'll Mid- always say Midnight Cowboy. It's a great film, but it's also a great. And, and I think this is an interesting one because it's not a score. It is a series of songs, but they are, um, you know, composed for it. Um, a, a, an interesting fact for you, if you weren't aware, Bob Dylan was approached to write the theme tune and uh, the song that he did write for it was Lay, Lady, Lay. Lay, Lady, Lay. But he didn't finish it in time, so it is not actually on the soundtrack. So instead we get, the, you know, the classic one we know, which is Nilsson singing Everyone's Talking, which is, you know, it's just heartrending. 
um, and especially in the context of the film. I'm going to play a little bit. Um, please indulge me. I want to play um, the the theme from Midnight Cowboy. So the soundtrack album is John Barry, but it has numerous artists on it. This is Toots Thielman. Is it on the? Is it in the book? I don't believe so. Oh well, let's play a bit from it. As I say, it doesn't necessarily count, but listen to this. Listen to it. Listen to it. There it goes, the theme for Midnight Cowboy. If you haven't seen that film, then that is uh, your homework for the weekend. Watch that. John Voight and Dustin Hoffman, absolutely fantastic. And, you know, just listen to the soundtrack over and over, and over again because it's brilliant as well. Um, that's put together by John Barry. John Barry, um, anecdote for you, did is responsible for the first soundtrack album that was released in the UK. I think it was about 1960 for the Adam Faith starring Beat Girl. Um, which is a film of, of not particular, um, you know, people don't know about it now, but it has a fabulous, fabulous opening soundtrack as well. Opening uh, song, recommend that. Just open, if you just go on YouTube and just watch the opening um, sequence, it's just, you know, sort of groovy, groovy cats dancing and Adam Faith calling people squares and stuff. It's brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and of course, uh, John Barry is, you know, huge form. And you were mentioning how many how many scores has he got in the book? I think it's five. Um, so there's the ones we mentioned earlier, Out of Africa... Um, Dances with Wolves and Born Free then there's also The Lion in Winter from 1968 and Somewhere in Time from 1980 which is a great film and the fact that you've missed out The Ipcrest File just gives you an idea of the the sort of size of the the scope you've got here because that's amazing wonderfully creepy film isn't it one thing I love about John Barry's um, there's an evolution to his music as well um, is that the earlier soundtracks, you, you know, the Ipcris file and the early Bond stuff is much more ev- evoking of a big band style and mm. the kind of jazzier themes. And then you start to see him really start to introduce the, the string sections into his, into, his, into his movies, including the Bond movies. You listen to um, the lushness of, of Roger Moore's era and you see things like Moonraker and you start to see the involvement into Dance with Wolves and Out of Africa, those kind of big string motifs, the simple melodies. He's very romantic, John Barry. And um, I will say that the transitional album for me is um, is uh, the one the one he did after Midnight Cowboy, which is on Her Majesty's Secret Service. And he did eleven Bond films. Hang on. Um, and, uh, and the thing you hear is hang, hang on, hang on. I'm playing a bit. You can't hear it, but I can't play it. And the thing you're probably hearing, if you're hearing, if you're hearing, are you playing the title seek the title song from uh, On Her Majesty's Secret uh, yeah, Service? Yeah, it's just fantastic. Isn't yeah, it? and you're hearing the the Moog synthesizer Squelch and the kind of away. yeah. Uh, you know, it was this was the real transitional album for me because this is the one that got started really focusing on the strings. As a, you know, he did it with You Only Live Tries, but this one in particular, and then his collaboration with Louis Armstrong, oh, with All Time in the World, so uh, and then the playfulness of uh, working with Nina. You know, oh, let's just, just have a little moment. Listen to the the squelching. Yeah, it's amazing. Tanks. Hang on a second. So good, so good. I'm going to leave it running on the background. Sorry, Tim doesn't have headphones on, so he can't actually hear the music. So it's a bit, a bit cruel and unusual that I can hear it, and he can't because it's fantastic. Yeah. Um, oh, excellent, excellent one there. Would you say that's one of your one of your choices if you had to pick? If you had to pick a top soundtrack album or soundtrack score, what would you, would it be there? Oh yeah. Um, I, I as I say, I, I stand up for um, you know all you know the. You know, I'm bon- you know, you know me, and I'm aficionado and all things Bond. This, this out, this, this out, this um soundtrack is the most playful of Barry's, in my opinion. Mm. I love Moonraker as well, 
there's a particular there's a you know, the, the whole um, space going into space sequence uh, during during uh, during Moonraker. I mean, Moonraker is a very silly film, which I stand up for because it's so silly. Um, but there's stuff in there which is classically Barry and very romantic. And then another another film which hasn't been mentioned, which I love just because of the the romantic element, is uh, Robin and Marion. And again, a very simple string 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 motif is a romantic theme between um, um, Sean Connery's uh, Robin and um, Audrey Hepburn's Marion. And the at the sort of the outro makes me cry like a baby. Um, but that that's uh, you know that's just me. So does is Bond in? Does Bond make Bond the book? doesn't make it into the book simply because um, there's usually a kind of popular song opening the opening the film or at some point in the film. So uh, yeah, we, we it doesn't fit the criteria. Doesn't really know. fit the criteria. Sadly. <laughs> okay. Fair okay. Enough, interesting. Interesting. Um, so you wanted to talk on um, animations, didn't you? Uh, yeah, because we've not really mentioned animations yet, and I think it's worth mentioning how film music can be just as effective in in cartoons or animations as it as it can be in. Um, kind of feature live-action film. And there's only one um, animated film made it into the final 100, and that's Up. Well, let's have um, a listen. I've got a, This is it playing in the background now. So this is the composed by Michael Giacchino. Who I love. And this track He's is called Car Goes Up. So Up, as everyone who... Anyone with a uh, any kind soul. of... Any soul knows, is <laughs> the single most... Heart-rending animated film ever made. Yep, I, I, we decided to include up in the book for a single four-minute moment at the start of the film, which Ooh. is a montage sequence where the two main characters meet, fall in love, get a house together. And the music's very jovial. You've got kind of violin melodies and, and brass, and it's all upbeat. And then there's a series of tragedies that fall upon these two characters. Um, you know, there's, there's sadly a, a miscarriage when they're trying to start a family, and then, and then the. The female character Ellie goes on to die, leaving leaving Carl, the old man, stuck by himself. It's an absolutely, you know, horrifically but amazingly poignant opening four or five minutes to a to an animated film, and and uh, you know, Pixar is now Disney Pixar mm. just just kind of hit punchy right between the eyes with that opening moment. And Michael Giacchino's music it just reinforces the uh, the the poignancy of that scene and. and there's no other examples in the book or in, in film generally that I can think of that just a four-minute sequence um, just make, makes the film so deserving of a place among the top scores of all time. Yeah, it, it, it won the Oscar and the Golden Globe that year up. Um, I love I love Michael Giacchino's. Is it Giacchino? Let's get his name. I've, I've been saying Giacchino for ages, <laughs> but, but having spoken to an Italian speaker, the, apparently the CH sound is, is ch, so I think we'll go with Giacchino. I think um, what I, um, the other thing, if you, if you know, you know, you'll know this. If you look at his, um, if you look at the soundtracks, he always puts hilarious titles on the names of his tracks. Um, he uses the word dash to describe run, running or action scenes quite a lot. If you look at things like Ratatouille and Up, there's always something with dash written in the title or something. He's one of the most playfully humorous composers. I think he's a, he's like a rightful heir to John Williams in some regards. Absolutely. Except he's probably a little more, you know, he, he can tell he started with video games a little bit. Yeah, some, somebody, perfect somebody was talking to me the other day saying, how do you feel about the future of film music and film composers? And Michael Giacchino is one of the kind of rising I'm hesitant to call him a rising star he's been around a long time <laughs> probably a good 10, 15, 20 years older than me but um, with, with John Williams of course ageing there's no, there's no disputing that fact he's in his late 80s now 
um, and Hans Zimmer writing in his Hans Zimmer-esque style. There's been some concern about who the who the rightful heirs are to to, to John Williams, and like you said, Giacchino is is well up there in terms of yeah. um, the next big film music uh, figure. Yeah, because there's a lot. Again, I think you go back to a point. There's a lot of um, artists out there that have a kind of an Hans Zimmer-esque approach to um, uh, music. I think there's a guy that kind of does the halfway house between melodic and Hans Zimmer, and, and that would be Thomas Newman. I think that he's very, he's very much, you know, he does a lot of the Pixar stuff as well. Mm. Um, and uh, there are three guys actually who do a lot of the Pixar stuff. There's Giacchino, there's, Han, uh, there's jo- Thomas Newman, and um, John Powell as well, who's done a lot. Um, to- John Powell is very much out of the Zimmer school in, in regard, but he ends up doing these really playful, jolly soundtracks. And he did a really good job with Solo last year, yeah, evoking the kind of the John Williams esque approach. That's right, I thought he was really good. Ta- talking of yeah. Solo and Rogue One, um, I was having another discussion the other day with somebody about um, how we feel about this kind of imitation game that's going on with with you know being being offered a Star Wars film but without John Williams on the as the composer. How difficult do you think that must be for a composer to come in and say write something in the John Williams style without mm. without mimicking or sounding cliched? I think it's both hard because you're always going to be compared and an absolute joy it must be the biggest privilege to be offered to do to do one of the spin-offs mm. it's the same with the harry potter films isn't it because yeah. williams only did the first two or three was it and but then, then patrick doyle then did patrick some. doyle and um someone else came nicholas hooper yeah one as well and uh, again both amazing yeah composers in their own what right. a feeling having john williams handing over here's here's my main here's my light motifs here's my character themes do what you want with them one of the things I have to say, I'm hearing, one of the things I'm hearing here is a lot of names being thrown around, and it has to be said, I'm not hearing very many women. Is this a problem? I mean, we know it's a problem in, in film as a whole. Is it a problem, or in society as a whole, but is it, is it an issue here, do you think? Do you think there's, I'm not hearing very many female composers being cited. Is, there, is that a problem? It is a problem, and we have, we have addressed it in the, in the introduction to the book, and you know, we've both held our hands up and said that there isn't a single female composer in the entire book, and that wasn't something that we, that wasn't a decision we made intentionally or a decision we made lightly. And we've mentioned in the introduction that it's simply a sad indictment of society and mm. the opportunities that women have had to write film scores during the periods that we were looking at. Um, I think things are slowly, slowly and too slowly improving in terms of um, kind of female composers being promoted and, you know, you, you do start to hear um, female names appearing on, on film credits and see film female names appearing on film credits as the composer. But I just, I just think that up until this point, the opportunities haven't been there. And the same goes for, you know, um, black and ethnic minorities as well. Very few. It's, it's a very white, European, American, male-dominated book well, and, and sector, really. And that's, that's, a, that, that's a, a shame. I was thinking, I mean, I mentioned Mika Levy as a standout. I think um, Rachel Portman's work mm. would stand out, I think. Um, stuff like, you know, so she, she, kind of the work that she did with Lassie Holstrom, all the kind of shocklers and la- cider house rules is all the kind of sort of the sweet motif work mm. that she does. She's a great composer. Um, <laughs> and I was thinking Wendy Carlos, but then I realised that Wendy Carlos was something else. Well, Wendy, Carlos. Wendy Carlos. Yeah, but the, Wendy, Wendy, Wendy Carlos, because right? yeah. I was going to talk about Vangelis, because the same year as Vangelis did Blade Runner, Tron came out. 
and Tron is a very pivotal soundtrack, I think. And I think my, my, uh, Wendy my, Carlos's soundtrack for uh, um, Clockwork Orange is and the Shining. my favourite as well. No, she yeah. did The Shining as well. Yeah. So, um, so, yeah, there are some, but yeah, I mean, it's clearly um, a long way to go, as it is, uh, you know, in film in general. I would say it's actually, yeah, and, in, 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 you know, the same applies to special effects and technical mm-hmm. stuff. It's a very male-dominated and world. Um, and let's, um, let's face it, um, we're all men as well, so um, we're, we're on part of the problem. Um, the exception to that, of course, <laughs> I mean, <it's> a, <laughs> is um, um, excuse me. This isn't, this isn't going well. I'm trying to be. Uh, I'm trying to be. I'm trying to be mayor culpa here. Um, you are. Uh, you are culpa. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Because one, one final <laughs> kind of point on that is that, of course, many of the films that many of the finest film scores of all times come from the golden age of Hollywood in the you know 40s, 50s, and 60s mm. when things were incredibly you know unequal unequal mm. between between males and females so it, it really wasn't a conscious decision I think it's like I said it's more of a reflection on the state of the industry rather than mm. any conscious decision not to include um, female composers and I would think also I think you know you start to think of other people who've done great soundtracks I think of people like Anne Dudley who you know Cut off another one who started off as a rock, as a pop musician with the art of noise and then mm. went on to do all sorts of things as well. So you know there are quite a lot of them out there. Mm. Um, well, and let's hope well, we not hear a lot, more. but there's a lot. Um, thank not, you for your tweets. We are getting lots of tweets of people. Um, Dave Hart has mentioned um, the score for Rykuda's Paris, uh, Rykuda's score for Paris, Texas, as being something that uh, that he saw before he got into the film um and he knew one track contains um, a, a, sec- a section from the film and he actually knew it by heart before he actually saw the film um and uh, feathers and wings hello feathers and wings has mentioned uh, Derek Jarman's blue is that in the is that in the book no nope, no afraid i'm afraid not joseph oldham has approved of our john barry discussion so um, we're, we're grateful for that. Hello, Joseph, and the rest of you. So um, we, we've got half an hour of the show left. We want to talk about lots of other things. You are still time to, to tweet us. One other thing I wanted to mention whilst I remember when we talk about um, filmmaking is our local um, filmmaking is a fabulous um, living, breathing thing that we have here in Birmingham. We are very blessed with um, with with filmmakers here, and there's lots of interesting things going on. And we uh, regular listeners to the show will know that we have had on our show Carl Timms, um, who's directed a film called Off Grid, which is currently in post production. The soundtrack for that is being made at the moment. Um, just wanted to mention that he that film, his previous film, still. Uh, short film, so- zombie film, shot here in Birmingham, with a soundtrack from local composer uh, and the lead singer of, um, he's, I think it was a death metal band or heavy metal band, Reign of Fury, but um, also scoring um, that film is now available uh, on Amazon Prime. So if you haven't seen that film yet, uh, and you do have Reign of Fury. Sorry, I know the guys. <laughs> you know, so um, yeah, so um, that's uh, Matt Steed is the name yes, of the yeah, yeah. Um, the musician who's done that score. So if you are available, uh, if you have got Amazon Prime, have a look at that as well. Um, the other thing that we should probably mention, and if you want to send your contributions in, is that there's some kind of film prize coming up soon. The Oscar. Oscars or something? Have you oh, heard something of this? called the Oscars. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Are, you, are you aware? When is this? Never heard of it. I think it's something that's happening on Sunday. Okay. I believe they do it every year in LA, and some people arrive in black tie and okay. stuff. Um, yeah, I'm not really um, familiar with it. Um, I'm, I'm in all seriousness. I 
do not care. Um, and, you know, no, I'm not being you know glib about that. I just you know I think yeah, that doesn't doesn't interest me. But if you have any thoughts on that, if you'd like to tell us which ones you think, should I think win. I think the only question I have for people about the Oscars is who's going to upset the form on Sunday? Who's going to win something that hasn't won? until now and mm. to which that I'm just going to mention Glenn Close is going to win Best Actress on Sunday and I'll just leave that and let that sort of stew in the Twitter sphere I, and see I what comes back I couldn't tell you who, who's going to who, yeah I mean I can tell you who's nominated because yeah. I sweepstake every year okay. okay not for any money I just sweepstake Okay, and um, I mean, it's not really important. I'm not going to stay up for it. I'm not like. And 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 in in the music world, are you? Do you pay attention to you know which one is going to be? Do you have a view on which soundtrack should win this year? No, I couldn't care less. To be honest, (laughs) yeah. Um, I mean, (laughs) heaven forbid anyone ever kind of rating ranking films and putting them in a list of 100. Best original score nominees this year: Black Panther, which is Ludwig Göransson, great score; Terence Blanchard for Black Klansman. I'm giving you a thumbs up. Mary, Mary Poppins Returns, Mark Shaman, Isle of Dogs, Alexander Desplat. Desplat. Is that right? Desplat. That's how I've always said it, okay. just because it sounds funny. See, there's another one who goes for Desplat. It's not just me. <laughs> who also, I love another another hero of uh, modern composing. Mm. Yeah. Um, uh, and um, If Beale Street Could Talk, which we've mentioned. Nicholas yeah, so I haven't seen that. Who's going to win out of those, do you think? I think it will probably be Black Panther or Black mm. Panther. I mean... I've heard the score to Mary Poppins Returns and it's it's a bit too much like an homage yeah. to the original one and there's a fine line between cleverly taking on the same musical style as the original film but at various points during the score I felt like it was going to break into one of the original songs and <laughs> I'm just I don't know I just feel like it fell the wrong side of just imitation to the point where it's trying too hard to be the original film and too hard to be successful. I've heard very... I've not actually seen the film, admittedly. I just listened to the score on the train home one day, but um, it's quite clever in a way how they've, they've evoked that same musical feel and aesthetic from the original film. But to me, if it wins an Oscar, it's almost kind of winning it as a... As an homage. A, a cover band version of the... Ooh. Well, that, that leads Ooh. us into all manner of discussions about Bohemian Rhapsody being uh, nominated for, for that. So we shall maybe not... It has uh, been nominated for that. No, it's been nominated for Best Picture, hasn't it? Um, and, uh, yeah, and, and and it's very popular, and I really, really enjoyed it, and yeah. it was great fun. And who's to say and, what's uh, better than others? I certainly wouldn't uh, wouldn't you know want to want to rank those films. Neither would I. I certainly wouldn't write a book about it. Uh, exactly. Any any sort of um, nutcase that would spend two years deciding which ones are the best and which one is the ninety ninth, and which but they're not in you're, they're not a ranking, is it? No, that would have caused far too many arguments. That would be um, too it, much. it was difficult enough finding the final one hundred, and like I said, we've got another hundred in the back so there's actually 200 films listed in the book but only 100 that have been spoken about in any detail and we've gone for the safe option and put them alphabetically and the and the book's been out for how long september it was released okay. over last year uh, is it is it is there anything that you would have changed now has anything come out in the last three or four months that would have uh, made the cut now not really i mean it's it's it kind of speaks volumes how we started writing it in at the very back end of 2000 and what would it be probably 17 when we actually started writing it and the latest film in there is 2014 with Interstellar so what that says about the last five years in the film industry and the scores that have been released I'm not sure but um, nothing really sprung to mind 
and hasn't since that would really challenge the films we've already got in there, I don't think. One thing that, that I'm surprised... Uh, is Johan Johansson in there at all? Because no. um, one of the things that, that, I'm, you know, that I'm fascinated by, and I've talked about this before on the show, is this idea of... The, the blurring the line between where the soundtrack ends uh, and, the, and the music ends and the, and the film begins. And I feel that he's very much part of that um, in the same way that we talked about, you know, um, Under the Skin earlier, this idea. So in the film Arrival, there's the, the, the these great big aliens, as, as people who've seen him know, and they make odd noises. Um, and the music incorporates that, but it's also, it's never at any point clear to you where the music is and where the... Where the um, you know the sound effects begin and end, and I think he's a, he's he's a great example of that. But um, you know, do, do, does that does that make it difficult for you to assess these things musically if they are you know if they are unable to be under, indivisible from the visuals? Because I mean, I'll, we started off with 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 the um, the Charlie Chaplin, which was clearly a piece of music you could listen to, but when we played the um, you know the the Under the Skin, possibly less so. I mean, is that make it more difficult to assess? Yeah, definitely, and I think. You've just asked me if I would change anything about the book, and actually, I'm wondering whether a more accurate title for the book would be the 100 Greatest Film Themes, um, or Musical Themes, because we've we've gone for scores that have melodies, very clear melodies, which are either over the opening titles or the opening scene, or it's melodies that happen throughout the film against a certain scene. There's not really a single score in there that where it blends with the, the the sound effects or the sound world of the film itself. Mm. It's all it's the majority. In fact, all 100 are traditional orchestral underscore that sits very comfortably separately from the from the action on screen. So um, I think it's a very interesting new development in film to to blend the music with the with the sound effects because then you you, you start entering the world of um, Mixing diegetic and non-diegetic sound, and I might have to. You might have to. Fine. Okay. Not. You know, I'm fine. I'm fine with it. But you know, some people at home might not be aware. Okay. Of it. So, <laughs> diegetic music is uh, sound which is found within the film world. So anything that's diegetic, the characters in the film can hear that sound or music. Uh, so an so. example would be the Cantina Band in Star Wars. The characters in that location on screen can hear the music. Non-diegetic music is um, traditional underscore, so it's music that the audience can hear, but it exists outside of the film world, so it's added to the film afterwards, and it doesn't belong in in within there's the story. A, there's a great line I was watching the um, recording, you know, the director's cut of one of the Lord of the Rings films, and uh, Sean Astin said, you know, um, was 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 trying to under- talk to the lighting director and said, you know, where does the light source for this film? I can't understand where the light in this scene where the light's supposed to be coming from. And the guys did the same place as the music. Yes. yes. Um, was it, was it, um, it might have been Hitchcock and Herman again, actually, or, or someone saying to Hitchcock, there was a scene in a particular Hitchcock film, I think, where they're out on a, on a boat in the ocean. I can't think what it, what it is. And um, someone said to um, either Herman or Hitchcock, why, why have you got symphonic orchestra, orchestral music here? Because they're on, they're out on a boat in the middle of the ocean. Where's the orchestra? And someone replied again, you tell me where the cameras are, and yeah. I'll tell you where the orchestra is. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, we're talking about diegetic. Yeah, yeah. So um, I think it's a really interesting blending of, of diegetic and non-diegetic sounds. So you've got music, which is traditionally off-screen, out of the film world, added at the end. You know, it, the characters can't hear it. But if you're then blending that with sounds the characters can hear, does the music then become audible to them as well? Um there's a very, very controversial moment in Solo, a Star Wars story, where the Imperial March is heard 
diegetically in in the film world for the first ever time in a Star Wars film. When when Han's going to sign up for the for the to be an Imperial pilot, yeah. there's a propaganda video in the background, and, and they've put the Imperial march in the film in a major key rather than the usual minor as a kind of. This I is, love that. Bit. This is, <laughs> but yeah, uh, but it, it's kind of upset Star Wars fans because of course it does. They, they, by making the by, an, an easily upset Star Wars yeah, yeah, fan, what next? By making the by making Darth Vader's Imperial march diegetic, that's acknowledging in some way that Darth Vader himself is aware that he's got a theme tune that he kind of walks around to, mm. which makes it a little bit ridiculous. I also think, though, yeah, but for me, that's totally a, a bit of a knowing kind of wink-wink, nudge-nudge. Yeah, well, and it's certainly very much in keeping with the, th uh, you with know, the theme of that particular film, isn't it? Yeah. And it's, it's not, it's quite subtle as well. If you, if, yeah. if you, I think some people would need it pointing out because it's very low in the mix, so yeah. you've really got to listen out for it. I One, one thing that I can't think of any examples, but there are, I've, I really, really hate it that diegetic thing now I know the word for it is when it's not entirely clear to you if there's some music playing and it's not entirely clear to you whether the um, the character can hear it or not there's a word for that metadiegetic ah, I, oh, hate, I hate that it's horrible oh, yeah, I'm, loving or, this. I'm loving this or acousmatic music oh, ah. okay. which is where you can see the sound you can hear the sound but you're not entirely clear where the source of the sound is um, so for example a character that's um, there's a very good example in South Pacific, um, very old film, but very very wonderful film where there's a there's a song, a scene in the film called Twin Soliloquies, and it's a, a male the male and female character leads are singing, but they're singing in their imaginations to each other, so they can hear it that those individual characters can hear their own singing in their minds, but anyone else in that scene wouldn't be able to hear it because it's in their imagination. So that's kind of metadiegetic music. It's not, it, no one else in the film can hear it, but the audience can hear it and that character can hear that internally. Another example of metadiegetic meta sound would be the, um, you know, in war films or action films where you get an explosion and, and you can hear the characters kind of ringing in the ears. Mm. That's an example of that because that character can hear it, but nobody else would be able to hear it around them. Well, you're getting an education here on the Screen Brum show. We're using meta We're using long words. So um, thank you very I'm much. I'm glad I don't have to spell them out, and we're glad we don't have to tweet them out right now, right? <laughs> that's right. That's, that's um, quite... Uh, yeah. There is still time, um, speaking of tweets, for you to let us know um, any of your, um, you know, your, your favourites. And um, thank you, Lee Kemp, who's just tweeted in. Um, talking about film music as background music, which is interesting. Something that you can have on in the background whilst you're, whilst you're working. Um, Carl Timms, director Carl Timms, has also um, talked about how 100% uh, can listen to film scores separately from the visuals if it's a musical film score, but not if it's a soundscape. So I think that's an interesting distinction, isn't it? Mm. That's more the kind of the, you know, we're coming back to Hans Zimmer perhaps having a kind of visceral, almost a kinetic sound that's meant to express something very much visually. Whereas I guess some, most of the ones in the book are more, possibly more symphonic. Yeah, symphonic, melodic. Um traditional if you like mm. and I hesitate to use that word but um, it's kind of our traditional view of what a film score is you know these big grand soaring Hollywood strings and you mm. know, um, I think that's kind of what we've gravitated towards because I think it would just would have been too difficult if we started going into soundscapes and, and um, popular music scores and things like musicals as well you know we could have put things like Les Mis in there and Phantom of the Opera Grease, uh, for yeah. example, Sound of Music, but we, we kind of stuck very much to traditional orchestral underscores. Well, there's there's uh, a sequel, right? Are you working on the next one now already? Or? I should be really, shouldn't yeah. I? I mean, we've already got a list of 100 in the back, so they've, they've been chosen for us, but yeah. um, again, it's more of the same, really. So I would love to... I, th I, think, I think the 100 greatest... Um, 
scores that use popular music might be quite mm. might be quite a nice one. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking of you know, I'm just thinking of songs that have that have now on a, you know that maybe weren't originally part. Everything everyone's talking. The Nilsson song I'm thinking about that is. You know, it's not necessarily directly written for the film. I'm not quite sure in that case, but well, it wasn't written for the film, but it wasn't recorded for it. But, you know, you're indivisible from it now. I wonder if it's, Can you think of any other examples, Tim or Lucy, of songs which have become so entwined with... Um, songs which have become so entwined with sequences or scenes in films that they can't be separated anymore? No, we can't think of any. I, I probably, probably can come and love loads, but you've just put me on the spot. I, I apologise. <laughs> well, in that case, why not I play some music? Um, while we have a thing and see if you can think of any and this is one of um, uh, Lucy's choices for us um, and this is from um, Angelo Badliamenti you're a fan um, and um, he's, he's collaborates with um, David Lynch on a lot of films is that right? Yes um, most pretty much all of his work mm. so there's, I'm presuming that you're playing the intro to Blue Velvet I'm not Oh, I'm playing a different one that's very well known uh, it's from Twin Peaks oh Laura's theme okay. in that case <laughs> let's, let's have a listen to it it's gorgeous have you seen, there's a wonderful um, short clip of Badalamente telling about talking about when he started composing this with Lynch and I'll tweet that out, so if anyone wants to see it, it, it's just so wonderful to watch. Fantastic. Let's have a listen. Very atmospheric, Laura's Palmer's theme, the love theme from Twin Peaks, one of uh, Lucy Beth's uh, picks. Um, you mentioned um, you did remember a film, a song which has become associated with a, a film moment. What was it again? Yeah, it's some um, Groundhog Day with uh, I Got You Babe, because um, he wakes up to it every single morning. That's so right, yeah. Groundhog Day with I Got You Babe, he wakes up to it every single morning. And that is what we call a joke. Well done, everyone. <laughs> That's a definite academic joke, that, isn't it? It's horrendous. A classic. Um, I guess the other one you mentioned as well, Steeler's Wheel from um, um, Reservoir dogs yeah stuck in the middle with you um you know it's it's now you know a nice happy song has just always seems really horrific now yeah, but, you know, the, the, the original artists aren't going to complain because i'm sure it's sold them a few more records so. i'm sure they have um we've got 10 minutes 10 minutes left is your last chance to get any questions in for a proper musicologist who knows words like diagenetics and um yeah, I don't think I did remember that very well. Um, so if you have any questions, do tweet in. And you wanted to talk about the idea of nostalgia as well, didn't you? Yeah, so kind of moving moving to the small screen, if we, if we can briefly. Um, things like Stranger Things, the Netflix series, and, and film music has nostalgia. Film music's got many, many functions, and, and I'm sure you've discussed these in the past, you know, how it affects the audience, how it makes them cry, makes them laugh. But one thing we're starting to see in film music now is this notion of nostalgia. And I touched on the scores for Rogue One and Solo, a Star Wars story, and I think in some ways they're quite nostalgic because they imitate John Williams' style from the original 1977, 1980, 1983 films. But Stranger Things does it in um, very time-specific uh, fashion. So it's got 80s synth music, and it really evokes an, a 1980s that some viewers might not even remember or indeed have been born in. I was born in 1987, so I don't really remember the 1980s, but but there's never been a, a score for film or television that evokes a time period for me as much as um, the synthesised score for Stranger Things. It just takes you instantly to that kind of innocent, almost 1980s period, and, and mixed with the visuals, it's just such an effective score. Awesome. 
So the, 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 the good thing, as you say, about the soundtrack to, to Stranger Things as well is it is a mixture of, of original music like this and there's, there's just so many sort of classic 80s tracks in there as well that are, that are played in the... What's the word? A, agent? I've forgotten the word for it now. But they're played in the film anyway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the people can hear them on the radio. This track is Kids. is very good isn't it the soundtrack that's Carl Dixon and Michael Stein and that particular track is Kids from the Stranger Things uh, series one soundtrack um, thank you for your tweets we're getting lots uh, Joseph Oldham hello Joseph he has come up with some other suggestions for the um, the idea of songs that are in, in, inseparable from the the, uh, the sequence um, uh, The End by The Doors from Apocalypse Now and of course, "Born to Be Wild" from Easy Rider. You just hear that track, and you oh, it's a great film. You put your arms out for the for the. Um, the you could almost look like you get on a motorcycle with <laughs> yes. your tash. Well, I have a talking of Apocalypse Now as well. I mean, of course, "Ride of the Valkyries" by Richard Wagner. That's an example of classical music being being used in film, and it's it's yeah. for many many kind of modern audiences. They would associate that with with Apocalypse Now, not mm. with Wagner's Ring Cycle from the eighteen hundreds. Mm, very, very a good point. Um, so yeah, thank you for your um, for your tweets, all of you. Um, Feathers and Wings has approved the word meto, metadigetic. That's the one. Metadigetic. We all have to find a way of using that. Can you remind us what it means, Matt? It's when the the sound is it's stuck between the diegetic and non-diegetic. So it might be a character imagining a sound, so they can hear it on screen, but other characters around them cannot. So it's it's a very personal sound it might be imagination a dream sequence or, or um, tinnitus or ringing in the ears for example fantastic saying it 40 times very fast <laughs> and um, we've got a few minutes left so last chances for any kind of um, final points any soundtrack albums that you w- insist people listen to Tim um, I haven't. Well, I, yes, I've got I've got many more. But I was just we were just talking about Stranger Things there, and I I, I just happened to mention I one of the reasons I love Thor Ragnarok was because the soundtrack was evoking all his eightiesisms, you know everything 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 is a wink and a nudge to sort of the Flash Gordon type approach of the soundtrack making. It's, it's it's, more is more policy on that on that uh, whole film, uh, isn't it? Yeah, it, and it works because of that. Yeah, yeah, it's very good. Um, and uh, Lucy, have you got any any? Soundtrack albums or soundtrack scores that you recommend people listen to? Plenty. It's difficult <laughs> to narrow them down. Yeah. Any of Johnny Greenwood's... It's um, a Phantom Thread's a recent one, isn't it? Yes. The yeah. Master. Um, and You Were Never Really Here. They came out at a similar time, and that is an excellent score. Brilliant film, um, too. Going from Radiohead again, there's a few choices. Um, Tom York's first score um, for Suspiria, this... Um, last year um, I've listened to the score repeatedly I saw the film once and I won't watch it again (laughs) (laughs) I will will continue to listen to the score Phil Salway has done a lovely score as well there's a pattern emerging here isn't there are we just covering off everyone in Radiohead I've already (laughs) mentioned Johnny Greenwood let's stay in the same vein Um, someone I always bring up is Shane Carruth who's a bit of a one man band so he's Two features of Meme Primer and Upstream Color. Upstream Color is an absolute work of art. And um, he, yeah, he does everything. So he writes, directs, produces, edits, does the score, and acts as the main part. So he he wants ultimate control. He actually was meant to make a bigger feature, 
a couple of years ago, and he obviously wanted too much control and they cancelled it. But his score for Upstream Colour is just stunning, and it's it's soundscapey, but we're oh, I just listened to it. I, I've been listening to it for about five years now. Wasn't it you that said in a previous episode that Goblin came to Birmingham to do a uh, do some music? That's they right. And, and it was a family event, and they put up scenes from Suspiria. Yeah, as I they was, were doing. I was there with my. Like. I was there with my kids, and um, and it was absolutely <laughs> that's, horrific. That's <laughs> this absolutely was brilliant. About three in the afternoon, it was terrifying. <laughs> and the other thing about Goblin is, was didn't they write the script? They they were commissioned to write the score overnight and they did it in they wrote it in like 12 hours or something for it that film. it's a very powerful opening theme isn't it from the original there's it just kind of that mix between really creepy and childlike which works so well in horror films mm. it's a family event man it's a family yeah. event childlike that's what you need yeah yeah um i would <laughs> yeah I, I i could go on all day mentioning people but i'm a huge fan of carter burwell's stuff as well very yeah. playful all his collaborations with um the cohen brothers and is he on the is he in your he's book in, carter burwell is actually in the book yeah, yeah what, which one um, he was in the book for Fargo from 1996. There you go. Mm. Yeah, no, I mean, you can pick out so many great yeah. examples of Carter Burwell's stuff. I mean, I'm a huge fan of Carol, as you well know, a mm. beautiful soundtrack. Yeah, and, beautiful uh, film. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Matt, um, you know, we've had a lot of discussions. We've kind of pussyfooted around a little bit. Can you give us the final musicologist's answer here? Which is the best? Which is the best? Which e- is the best? E.T. There we go. It that just was easy. It does what a film score should. It, it, it takes an already emotional film and adding the music finally extracts those tears at the right moment. <laughs> and John Williams is, in my view, the finest film composer of all time, and that's his best score, in my opinion. There we go. I, I, I have another question um, about I this whole from the music's point of view. Is, I mean, this might be a bit late to ask it, but do you feel you ever have to kind of justify... This, the, your, your love for this music amongst other sort of musicologists. I'm just thinking, you know, do people get sniffy about this being, you know, music for the eyes or something? And is there ever any sense of that, or am I just. No, no, I mean, um, you know, certainly in the department I work in, it's a very diverse department. You've got, you've got someone next door teaching medieval music, you've got someone doing experimental composition, then there's me doing film music and video game music. I'm doing a session on music in theme parks later this uh, semester, which will be really interesting. Um, so no, Brian think, Eno over and over again in theme yeah, parks. Yeah, so, would, so would... film, television, video game music is a really, really um, popular and rising area of musicological yeah. study, and it's not trying to replace the studies of Beethoven, Mozart and Bach. It's just it's moving with society and as film television you know interactive media becomes more common so does the study of music so no it's um, it's a popular and kind of well regarded area of musicology which is very pleasing well we're very pleased to hear that because it, it makes us feel justified we're coming right up at the end of the show i want to say thank you very much before you go uh, dr lawson can you tell us again <laughs> the name of your book and how people can get hold of it yep it's the 100 greatest film scores by myself matt lawson and lawrence e mcdonald and it's available on the roman and little field uh, web page which is the publisher and it's also available at every other well-known online retailers mm. so if you're interested in that um is it's illustrated as well isn't it it's got it's got yeah there's um, every article has got a kind of a screen grab from each of the films so you can see what was going on in the film and just very accessible so you know don't worry that it's too musicological it isn't it was written with the sole purpose of being 
accessible to anybody that's interested in film music, regardless of musical education or background. Fantastic. So um, very much um, appreciate you coming in. Uh, Matt, thank you so much for your time. I hope you enjoy listening to the film scores tonight. Um, uh, can I also say very much a big thank you to you, Tim, for coming in as well. Thank you very much. And Lucy, thank you for your insights. Thank you. It's been a really good one. Um, we hope you have all enjoyed it at home as well. And um, Matt, would you like to introduce the track that is going to um, play us out tonight? This is your choice today. Yep, it's another John Williams one. What a surprise. <laughs> it's Hedwig's theme from Harry Potter. That's jolly. Fantastic, like that. everyone. Have a brilliant weekend, and we'll see you all... Oops, no, that's, that's not that. something else. And um, we'll see you all soon. Take good care, and have a fantastic weekend. Listen to uh, John Williams whenever you can. Yay. Thanks for listening to this Brum Radio podcast. If you've enjoyed it, please consider joining our listener supporters. You can do this by clicking the support tab on our website or go direct to Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash Brum Radio. Brum Radio shows are streamed online at the Brum Radio Mixcloud page and you can find more podcasts at brumradio.com.